Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. Um, I got such great feedback from last week's episode, the Q&A episode, that so many people are like, I love that format, I love that format. So here's what you guys got to do. You got to submit questions. <laughs> and you can do it anonymously. It's totally fine. But if you like that format and you want me to continue it, <clears throat> y'all got to send me some questions. So you can do that at kateanthony.com slash questions. So for this week, I have with me Dr. Amelia Kelly. Dr. Kelly is a trauma-informed therapist. She is a trained art therapist, an HSP therapist, which is highly sensitive person, which we talk about in this episode, and we're going to talk about more in a future episode. She is EMDR informed therapist, a meditation teacher, as well as a certified yoga instructor. She is all the things. She's a presenter and writer in the science help field, focusing on highly sensitive persons, trauma, motivation, healthy living, and adult ADHD. Basically, I want her to be my therapist, <laughs> but she doesn't live in my state. Um, she's a lead trainer for SAS's work-life program in Cary, North Carolina, and a resident trainer for the North Carolina Art Therapy Institute. Her private practice is part of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at the Kinsey Institute. Come on. Her newest book, What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship, was released on January 10th of this year, and that is what we're going to be talking about today, surviving and thriving after abuse. How do you move on? Oh, my goodness. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Amelia Kelly. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on and having this uh, such an important conversation about surviving after abuse and and like how to move forward from all of that, really. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. This is a really important conversation. It is. It is so important. So you have this new book coming out, which I think is really, it's really cool because you wrote it with a survivor, mm -hmm. which I think is really neat. And it's called What I Wish I Knew. <laughs> Girl, same. What I wish I knew. So, so tell me. So let's, let's like first talk about like what is this book about? Um, how did it come to be, and all of that? Sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah. So, what I wish I knew: surviving and thriving after an abusive relationship is a. It's a memoir slash self help book. So you've, you're getting everything at once. We're following my co author Kendall Ann's journey from the beginning of her relationship and how it progressed into abuse, and then how she finally got out, and then what happens after. Because sometimes the story seems to end there, and the likelihood of being what's called hoovered or sucked back into a relationship is just too prevalent. 
So we wanted to really highlight how do you really not just get out, but become the best version and the healthiest version of yourself. Yeah. Uh, the book actually came out of a podcast. Um, I was on hers, uh, High Heels and Heartache, and we had done an episode about how trauma affects the body. And I have this visceral memory of pun intended <laughs> body. Yeah. Um, where I'm leaving her studio, this was pre-COVID when you still were meeting in the studios. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her and I said, what if you had a book about everything you learned on your podcast? Because she has some really neat episodes. Mm -hmm. And it was just this moment that clicked. And we both were like, yeah, let's, let's do that. What we thought was going to start as more of kind of an informational gathering type of book evolved into her taking a super vulnerable dive into her experience. Um, each chapter is her starting with where she's at in her story and then me responding as if her, I'm her therapist uh, who is offering insight and skills and research driven ideas and red flags, aha moments so that we can hopefully help someone else not have to endure an entire relationship in order to know that they need to get out. Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. And I love that duality, right, of the the memoir and the vulnerable storytelling, because I think so much of what people need in this moment is that camaraderie and to know that they're not alone. Right. And it's one thing for a professional to write a book about it, but to have the voice of someone saying, here's how I went through it and here's how it impacted me. And this is what you know happened to me. It just it lessens the stigma so much. Agreed. And, you know, it kept me honest, too, as a helper and a healer to work with someone who not only had endured abuse, but who is really kicking, I don't know if I can say it. You can say, <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> you, saw my, you saw my mug, right? True, true. <laughs> Guys, I, for those of you, because you can't see me because uh, I have my, not my fucking job mug. <laughs> so. Well, she is kicking ass and, you know, really championing for survivors. And so it was really eye-opening and enlightening for me to work with someone who I got to see how strong she was. And I, I learned a lot from her too, in yeah. working with her. Mm -hmm. It was very different than what I'm used to with working alongside of someone who's maybe in the middle of a crisis who right. comes to my therapy office. Yeah. How, out of curiosity, how do you work with people who are in the middle of a crisis? Cause I think so much of what happens is when you're in the crisis, you're in the trauma and it's, it's like triage, right? How does, how does that work for you in your practice? I mean, it can really depend on where they, I love the word you use triage, where they are in the process. Right. So if someone's coming in the middle of a dangerous scenario, we are not going to be working on higher order, you know, what's the meaning of your life type of skills. We're literally working on the baseline, basic needs, safety, making sure that they have, you know, bearings over their life pretty much. Um, in psychology, there's this uh, Maslow's hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you really can't flip that upside down. You can't start on the top and work on spirituality when you are fearing for your life. For those who don't know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, can you go through it real quick so that define it for people? So essentially it's a theory that 
that says just that, that we need to make sure that we're addressing baseline. And it almost looks like the food pyramid if you were to look it up online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the bottom crust, you're going to have things like food, shelter, water. As you move up, you might have things like friendships, uh, jobs, uh, you know, kind of some other order goals that you have in your life. And as you continue to move up, it's going to evolve into more things like spirituality, existential crisis, things that you, as you peel the onion open in therapy, uh, that you get to start addressing. And for any of my folks that work with me, I am not exactly a solution focused style therapist. I've got a couple of people that have come in like that, but I think because as you and I were chatting about, I am a highly sensitive person. Mm-hmm. So I see the therapy process as a relationship that they might come for that rotten outer edge of the onion. But as we peel that back, there's so many things underneath and the same thing really can go for working on abuse. So as soon as I'm signaled that there's an actual danger aspect to someone's relationship, I will place any other goals we have aside and say, we need to work on that. I mean, I've gone into courtrooms before I've gone into, uh, places to help, uh, some of my clients, uh, get protection orders and have had to confront some clients about the choices they're making and whether or not they're safe. Now, let's say we move beyond that. We can start working on reestablishing new relationships, trusting love Mm -hmm. again, uh, Mm -hmm. figuring out what are maybe some of the goals and things or relationships that went on the back burner, but I will be honest, there's, there's a spin or a cycle that I find as a therapist, I get in with a lot of clients. Ooh, what is that? It is that they come in, they don't either, they don't realize how abusive their relationship is, or they do. And they have many reasons they don't want to leave. Yes. Same. (laughs) So, So I have to get to a point with them where I ask, am I helping you leave or am I helping you stay? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And if I'm helping you stay, we are going to be spinning our wheels if we continue to address the stress just within your relationship. So instead I will refocus the work we do on empowerment for them, getting them to make new friends, finding new hobbies, uh, figuring out if maybe there's a job that they wanted to do that they haven't pursued Cause my goal is to strengthen those nuts and bolts inside, inside their life. So eventually, and this can take years, sometimes eventually they'll get to the point where their inner resilience is mm-hmm. so much stronger so that they can finally make that move to leave. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I have a program. I'm going to shameless plug for my program right here. Um, oh. <laughs> it's my podcast. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. Um, but my, I have a program called, should I stay or should I go? And most of the program is exactly what you said. It's building that inner resilience because that's the point at which you can make an informed choice. You can't make that informed choice without the built up, the built up emotional intelligence and an emotional resilience, right? And then I, I remember I had a we our couples therapist. My ex and I were in imago therapy, and we had our our ther- our imago therapists <laughs> said that individual therapy. Uh, kills marriages. So they didn't want anyone, any of their couples in individual therapy. 
And I was in individual therapy. <laughs> like I had no bones about it. Indeed, my marriage ended, but it ended because of the emotional resilience work I was doing in therapy that had me no longer fit into right. an abusive dynamic mm-hmm. that wasn't being addressed in the couple's work. So right. I would say, yes, individual therapy may kill a relationship. It'll kill an unhealthy one. Right. Yeah. No, I love, I love that because that's something that a lot of my clients and I talk about is if they initially came in because maybe a partner had requested that they start therapy, or even I have, for instance, some adult clients who come in because they have family members in their life who are concerned about them. Mm. And then suddenly everyone in their life thinks therapy is not working because they're getting frustrated with the changes that these folks are making. Right. Right. Well, no, no, no. no. We didn't want you to change like that. We didn't want you to set those boundaries. What? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, and it's great. You know, I know that from my experience, when I outgrew, my abusive marriage, I also grew outgrew all of the abusive friendships and toxic relationships in my life, which were plentiful because that's because I was the one picking them all. Mm. You know? That can be that's something I noticed quite often too, that is part of the mourning process of ending an abusive relationship is all of the extraneous relationships that also end up having to end. And it yes. may, and I'm not talking about the ones that were there from before the, the, the people who really know you to your core, mm-hmm. but maybe those that were connected to you as a couple, perhaps yeah. mm-hmm. who think there's necessity to choose sides. And it's, it's a natural, almost like a, I don't know if you've ever gone hiking, like through hiking to have like the shakedown where you stop at the different spots and you take items out of your pack that are weighing you down and keeping <sighs> you from moving along. Huh. Um, it's kind of fun. Like if you're on one of those trails, you'll stop at the shakedown spots and you can pick up so many fun things that other hikers have left behind. Oh, cool. <laughs> I like that. And I feel like that happens a lot in that process of ending yes. toxic relationships. Yeah. I mean, I have a whole thing about friend, yeah, friendship shifts in divorce, right? Mm-hmm. Like because people respond in very personal ways and it's usually has nothing to do with you and the ending of your marriage, but it's often to do with what the mirror that you're holding up or how you've changed or, or whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I guess I want to talk about the trauma aspect. I mean, you are trauma informed therapist and, and I'm, I'm really curious because of your focus um, on HSPs like me. (laughs) Um, But I'm actually curious. Well, first of all, Let's define an HSP because I don't know that we've ever really talked about it on the podcast. Can you define that for everybody? So Dr. Elaine Aaron is, I'd say, the key researcher. If you want to look into some of her work, um, Mm -hmm. her website, hsperson.com, has an assessment on there that you can do to see if you classify as an HSP. I was very, very high, scored very high on that test. <laughs> okay. Now we get to, ta- now we get to check because I'm pretty high too. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm upper twenties, which is really high. Okay. Um, however, I'm also what they say is a high sensation seeker. So I look a little bit different than what you would expect a typical HSP to look like. Okay. And we're just for those listening, HSP stands for highly sensitive person. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to be clear about what that means, it does yes. not mean that you're emotional. Um, it doesn't mean you're overly sensitive. 
and you can't handle things. What it means is that you have a much more active limbic system than 80% of the population because HSPs make up statistically 20% of our population, which doesn't sound like much. Uh, But the thing about HSPs, when they can really hone in their, their traits and their strengths, they're the ones going out and entertaining us in media and starting businesses and acting as entrepreneurs. So they kind of become these larger than life presence when they can harness their skills. Mm-hmm. That's why it might feel like there's more in the world than there is. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard, like harnessing our skills is hard because we kind of are, there's an uphill, a little bit of an uphill battle. Right. So what is, what is yeah. an overact, overactive, is that what you said, limbic system? Um, so what is that, how does that manifest? What does that look like in a person or feel like in a person? Sure. So it's going to look like if you have a computer running with too many programs at once and overheats <laughs> essentially. Um, and those who our limbic system signals whether or not we're safe. So if we have an overactive limbic system, we don't just see a situation, we see everything about the situation. Um, and this this is portrayed in every way that a highly sensitive person experiences stimuli. Even though, even those, um, you know, like hidden pictures or Waldo, for instance, people who are highly sensitive are far surpassing in skill level on those hidden pictures and where's Waldo and all those games because our vision is more sensitive, but then we really need to take breaks. So I encourage my HSPs every day to take a 10 minute break with their eyes closed. And that doesn't have to be a nap. It could be meditation. It could be yoga. It could be a nap Um, (laughs) because otherwise you can just get overwhelmed. You can get, I mean, I I joke, my family knows and viewers can't, or uh, listeners can't see, but if I put my hands up and I go, I just can't, it just means I just can't. I have to take a second. There's too many things happening at once. Yes. I I feel like that like 25,000 times a day. I just can't. I just can't. I went to a party the other day, first party in like months, right? And it was outdoors and it was small. The music was really loud because it was a dance mm-hmm. party. And mm-hmm. I came home, I was flattened. I was mm-hmm. flattened <laughs> for like the like for a good eight. Well, I slept too. So probably like 14 hours. <laughs> I mean, it was like Yeah, it's done. so funny. I can definitely remember times where I've taken uh tissue and <laughs> rolled it up and shoved it in my ears at concerts. But here's the funny thing: being a high sensation seeker, I seek out those social experiences, mm. but leading up to them and then right after, I need a lot of decompression. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. This weird cycle. No, I think I might be similar in that way. Like I I love parties and I love, you know, being with people and I love uh, like all of that. But then like when I'm done, I'm Mm -hmm. done. And then I need to go away for like a long time. (laughs) And the thing it is, is that this can come out in wonderful ways as far as those who are HSPs being highly empathetic and caretakers and very, very aware of the feelings of others. And so that really can play out in romantic relationships as well. Well, and this was what I was before we, when I was, that's why I wanted to, I wanted to identify HSPs and we have 
you know, to a degree. We could do a whole episode on it. We could, <laughs> maybe we will. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, because I want, I'm curious about the connection because I, I feel like I see this anecdotally a lot, the connection mm-hmm. between HSPs and abusive relationships. Mm, okay. Meaning the like, person who is the survivor ends up being the HSP? Yeah. I mean, just, or that how, like are HSPs drawn to more abusers? Are they because of our um, empathy and caretaking and sensitivity? We're so, I think we're so sensitive and insightful about other people's processes, right? We can just sort of dive right in and be like, oh, it's that. And we, which is why we're coaches and therapists. (laughs) But because of that, I think that we're, whether, whether we're victimized more, we're more likely to be victimized and targeted or whether we are just more likely to sort of get involved in a relationship that doesn't, you know, that may be abusive without seeing the red flags because we're focused on the empathy. Like, what do you think about that? Gosh, so many things are running through my mind as a highly sensitive person. So let me (laughs) unload those. Um, The first is comes to mind is a uh, study on children who are highly sensitive, the orchid versus dandelion. And what they were looking at was when you have a family who the children experience the same sort of adversive childhood experiences, why is it that some children end up being completely healthy, successful, and not having trauma responses and some do not? And the big thing has to do with sensitivity. So orchids who represent highly sensitive individuals, they take a whole lot more maintenance, but once they are maintained well, I mean, one single pet, one single flower can captivate a whole room when it comes Mm -hmm. to orchids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dandelions, I mean, they're medicinal, they're beautiful. There's some really neat things about them, but I mean, you, you can't kill them. (laughs) (laughs) You have to weed whack. You have to, I mean, you have to like work to get, to take them down. Yeah. And so that represents that kind of mind. And so my thinking is it might start as early as childhood in, if you have a highly sensitive person who absorb their experiences, other emotional abuse or other forms of abuse, or even adverse, stressful experiences as a child, they may be more impacted by that, which may make it more likely that they will reenact those kind of relationships. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I will throw one thing out there to provide a little hope for the orchids in the world. There's also this really neat phenomenon that when a highly sensitive person does engage in self-care, whether it be yoga therapy, you know, expressing yourself through a podcast, whatever that is, orchids get, or highly sensitive people get more out of it. Mm, Yes. They absorb more of the good stuff too. That's so, that's so like good to, it's like, that's reaffirming, right? Like, cause I, yes, absolutely. Yes. I can see that. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be something that begins that early. It could also be, as you were mentioning that highly sensitive people may be able to empathize more and kind of see under the layers of people. So there's a chance they could be more susceptible to the manipulative tactics of Mm -hmm. a narcissist potentially, but, um, I have to be honest. I don't know if I, if I really statistically would, would support that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was, it's just sort of anecdotal for me, but I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. Maybe we'll just have to do a little, a little bit of research on it. I don't know. Could be. I mean, one thought that does come to mind just to piggyback off that is that 
if you're a highly sensitive person who has not learned how to harness your high sensitivity, right? So if you're someone who is walking around vibrating at a more anxious state, you would probably be more susceptible. Mm-hmm. It may mm-hmm. not be your high sensitivity that makes you highly sept- more susceptible. It may mm. be more so that you're already feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. And now a quick word from our sponsor today, the Should I Stay or Should I Go program. That's right. It's my program. I'm sponsoring myself today. Look, if you're terrified, brokenhearted, and desperate for answers, if you've consulted oracles and spirit guides and journaled to death about whether or not to leave your marriage, if you've taken all of the classes, read all of the books, and listened to all of the podcasts, but you're still not sure what to do, then Should I Stay or Should I Go is for you. Should I Stay or Should I Go is a self-paced online coaching program that will give you all of the tools you need to make the best decision about your marriage for yourself and your kids. There is no other coaching program out there designed to answer this specific question, backed by an in-depth study of marriage and human psychology. There is no other coaching program out there created by someone who has walked this path or has such an incredible amount of experience helping women successfully travel the road to freedom. Freedom from doubt and confusion, freedom from constant worry and the swirl of indecision, and freedom from a history of unhealthy and toxic relationships. If you're ready to break free and find the answers you've been looking for, along with confidence and clarity, then join me and hundreds of other women in the Should I Stay or Should I Go program. Truly, the time is now, because you, my love, deserve to be happy. Just go to kateanthony.com slash should I stay and use the code DSGPOD for $50 off. That's DSG pod as in divorce survival guide podcast. So it's kateanthony.com slash should I stay and use the code DSG pod and you'll get $50 off for being a loyal and faithful listener. Thank you so much. And now back to our episode. Let's move back into thriving after, right? Like, Uh, You know, we've talked, we always talk so much, uh, certainly on this podcast about like identifying an abusive relationship and how to, how to extricate yourself from one getting out, but like, oh my God, then what? (laughs) Right? Like (laughs) what's next, you know, because, you know, from a, from like a trauma informed lens, right? Like you are in the trauma and when you're in the relationship, you're in the trauma and you're on high alert all the time. Mm -hmm. And now if you're out, if you made it out, you may be feeling the weight of like all of those feelings now, right? Mm-hmm. Because you were protecting, you know, your system was protecting you from them before. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do people do with that? Well, unfortunately, sometimes people do what feels safest in the moment, which is to continue to isolate themselves from others. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite of what we want. What we really need is to what's called co-regulate someone else create a sense of safety within us. And that's really, I mean, that's honestly half of what therapy is, is you come hopefully to my office when it's not the peak of COVID, Um, (laughs) you come to my office and you can feel that I am vibrating at a calm state, which then allows you to feel safer. So Any way that someone can 
engage in some sort of community and it doesn't have to be large. It could be small. It could be reaching out to an old trusted friend that maybe you've lost touch with, um, doing things virtually, uh, if that's feels safer, doing things to help regulate your nervous system too. You know, things like singing is fabulous for your mm. nervous system. It helps your vagus nerve. It just kind of vibrates that whole area of our nervous system. Mm-hmm. So I I've seen those, um, like acapella groups online, especially during the pandemic that all get together and everyone sings apart and they're uh-huh. all yeah. I just think how fabulous would it be to have like a survivor's acapella group where <sighs> you can all, we should start this. No, Liz, you- I'm like, this sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> um, where you can all be together. Uh, so that takes a, a leap of faith with a little bit of vulnerability mm-hmm. to, to, you know, put yourself out there. And here's the thing. You don't have to lead with that. You don't have to join something or go somewhere and report to the whole room. Hey everyone, I'm here to co-regulate with you. You know, you can literally just be in a yoga class in the back of the room, completely out of the scope of everyone and just be breathing with other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's honestly one of the reasons why we wrote this book was because this conversation talking about that abuse exists, that it's so prevalent. I mean, one in three women in the U S which is in just really unfortunate and horrible, horrible. Uh, one, one in four young women, you know, ages 15 to 24, I think something around that. Um, if this was a much more prevalent conversation, it would be something that we would talk about more often. So there'd be less shame surrounding it. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. It's amazing. I have a, I have a Facebook group that's got like um, over 8,000 women in it right now. And there is that sense of like, oh, there are so many of us like, whoa, (laughs) you know, like, I can't believe how many of us there are. It takes the shame away immediately. Yeah. And something else that's really important too, I think is recognizing what is abuse as opposed to what is not meaning. Mm -hmm. It does not have to be physical to be abuse. Oh, yes. We talk, we talk about that a lot here, a lot yeah. here. Um, how do you help women or people recognize emotional abuse for themselves? So I think one of the things that I notice quite often when I'm exploring this with my clients is when they start to have to shut down some of their inner dialogue, their experiences, their ego strengths, their personality. Like if you need to start shutting those things down in order to allow the other person to be who they are, but you don't get to be who you are, that's <laughs> you find that there's a problem. Yes. Uh, yes. So like when you don't feel like you are your, you are allowed or able yeah. to be your full authentic self in your yeah. relationship without some kind of punishment. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And punishment can look very different. I mean, punishment can be stonewalling where someone's just giving you the silent treatment to hurt you, or it can be manipulation where they make you feel guilty for wanting to go be yourself. I know that that came up quite a bit. If you read the book in Kendall Land's experience with her abuser, um, And, you know, having to shut down little parts of yourself makes you definitely more susceptible to other more obvious forms of emotional abuse. 
such as, you know, aggressive, verbally aggressive abuse. It can be so subtle and mm-hmm. insidious and the rare person who's going to be, who's going to be overt about mm-hmm. their criticism because like, that's just, you're just an asshole, right? right. Um, <laughs> so, you're probably not going to get what you want doing that. Right. And, and so it's usually so covert mm-hmm. and, and can be so confusing that mm-hmm. like, you can't even describe it to other people in a right. way that like makes sense. Right. So it's less about, it's often less about like what they're doing, you know, mm-hmm. like my ex would bristle at me. Like I would be talking mm-hmm. and he would just visibly bristle. And like, mm-hmm. like I was scaring him in some way. And, you know, and then I would get the sort of the list of the things that I did wrong when we left a party and stuff like that. But it was all very subtle. It was like, but you, you didn't like touch me the right way or you didn't, no, 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 right? And, yeah. and I was, and I was very slowly and incrementally like mm-hmm. shrinking to the degree that like people would just be like, every time I talked to him, I sounded so false and weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. And I was, I felt like I was bending myself into pretzels, but like, it was, it was less about his actions and how I felt. I think, like you said, right? Like, do you feel like you can be like, no, no, I could not. And if you feel like you're, which it sounds like your ex had done this with you, where you were to blame for everything. Everything. Yes. Which is absolutely a form of gaslighting, mm-hmm. you know, making you feel like, you are the catalyst for every single thing that has gone wrong in the relationship, which is virtually impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that what he would do because he's, because he's so covert, he Mm. would be like, no, no, no. I mean, I totally get like, that's totally my part. And I totally get that. And I own that. And like, I do need to work on that. You're right. So it would look like he was taking responsibility, but he wasn't like, that's the, that's the covertness of it. Right. It's like, it's very rare that you're going to be in a relationship with someone who actually says to you, you're the problem for everything in this relationship, but they make you know it (laughs) in certain ways. Right. Right. Well, it sounds like he kind of cornered you into having to make him feel better about whatever he was upset about. And that, Mm -hmm. that is a form of emotional abuse. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, one thing to say also about emotional abuse that I'm not sure if has been highlighted on any of your other episodes, but the effect and the impact it has on the brain is, yeah, I mean, let's talk about it. This is really important. This is really important. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So research has shown that the parts of the brain that fire when you're experiencing physical harm are also the same areas that fire when you're experiencing heartache or emotional abuse. So what that means is that your brain does not read one differently than the other. And so the same fear and the same altering of what you're able to even attend to, whether or not you experience PTSD symptoms are going to happen with either form of abuse. And that's really important for people to know. It is. I think it's really important for people to know. And it's so important because I think that like so many of us, like we were talking about, feel like when we get out of an emotionally abusive situation, like we're out. So we're fine. Mm -hmm. But the healing from that trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 years of that in my case, like, and for some of my clients, 25 years, right. Right. Of that altering of the brain takes a lot to like unravel. 
Right. Well, because when you're, when you're in a situation that's chronic, your brain is going to start normalizing the areas that are necessary to stay safe and to function. I mean, it's kind of like language acquisition. Mm-hmm. You learn, I learned French. I, I, I could probably speak a, a sentence of it now, you know, because my brain knows it's not really necessary for my survival. Right. So it just prunes that part of my brain away who knows where it goes? Yeah. <laughs> My French is off somewhere with your French. I know, right? So, uh, put. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but, so those areas are no longer reinforced and they're not necessary anymore. So unfortunately, if someone's experiencing chronic, complex emotional or relationship abuse, the parts of the brain responsible for having fun, feeling confident, feeling loving, feeling safe, they actually start to minimize Whereas the areas of the brain responsible for being overly attentive, walking on eggshells, feeling tense, trying to keep yourself in a hypervigilant state, those parts become strengthened. And that doesn't just flip the moment you walk out the door. It takes intentional healing. And when, we're, when you're talking about parts of the brain sort of minimizing and expanding, we're, like we're actually talking about gray matter right? We're like actually talking about physical aspect of the brain, not just like more neurons, which they are, but, but they create more and less gray matter, right? Well, from what I understand, the area that probably gets the most impacted, uh, as far as like actual density, Uh your frontal cortex, that's responsible for, you know, rational thinking, decision-making, emotion regulation, the other has a little bit more to do with what fires versus uh-huh. what doesn't. Okay. So we have so much of our brain that is dormant when it's not needed. Right. You look at, there's some really neat brain scans you can see of, you know, someone reading versus someone meditating versus someone, it's the the way that they test how emotions even show up in different areas. So I don't want viewers to think their brain is going to <laughs> like your brain's not going to atrophy forever. Right? Right. <laughs> no, right. no. Okay. But it, it can definitely impact the brain uh-huh. in ways that we're still learning. Yeah. Okay. And so, and, and as you said, like you get out of there and it's not like, oof, well, now we're just going to let the gas out of that, you know, that tire or whatever. I don't think there's gas in a tire, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> we're not going to flip it. As Maybe it's going to float. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> it's not going to just flip. And so what are some ways Mm -hmm. that we can begin to work on that healing and sort of calm the brain and re-stimulate the brain in the right ways? Well, I think anyone listening right now is doing one of those things in this very moment. And that is education, Mm -hmm. teaching yourself about what it is you're experiencing. Because if you can normalize, this is my body protecting me versus this is just some random act that I can't control and I don't understand, giving that empowerment to know when something is happening and knowing the impermanence, Mm. like knowing that that moment or that flashback is not going to last all day, all night, it will subside. You start to experience these arcs where you have this spike of it's called subjective units of distress or suds you have like a spike of them and then they subside and then the next time because you're aware of it they'll slowly start to peter off until Mm -hmm. you know there might be certain triggers that 
You know, yeah. I've talked to people where being physically restrained is a trigger or a dear friend of mine went with me to a, an art gallery the other day and there was some really confined spaces here I am freaking out, hoping my mask is good enough. And she, whereas she, because she had experienced a previous um, abusive relationship, it was overwhelming for her to be in that kind of space. So that, mm-hmm. that was triggering to her. So it mm-hmm. can be, you know, there's so many different reasons why someone could have that moment. So empathy and not trying to rush yourself. And surrounding yourself with people who provide that for you too. If someone thinks there's a timestamp on when you should be better, I'm doing air quotes for anyone mm-hmm. who can't see that, they are not a safe person to continue to be in a relationship with. That's right. I love that. All right. So now like we're moving on, right? Mm-hmm. People are healing. They're doing this work. They're getting co-regulated and regulated, mm-hmm. um, internally regulated. How do you? In moving forward, how do you know what your, you know, a lot of people are looking for, like the not him, right? The not the other person, right? Mm -hmm. And then we're making our lists, right? Mm -hmm. What are some, what are some red flags that people should be looking out for? What are some Mm non-negotiables, things that should be (laughs) non-negotiable? Right, right. And that, that will look a little different for everyone. Um, I love you mentioned the list and something that would be great for everyone to do is to create what your non-negotiable list looks like. It might be different for, you know, there might be things that ethically or morally for you are important that maybe not someone else. But Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing with respect to that is recognizing that you even deserve to come up with a list. Mm. Yeah. You know, getting to be picky, getting to ask for things and know that you deserve the best version of who you want to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk with people a lot about like a vibration, you know, if uh-huh. you're vibrating at a very low level, that's who you're going to attract. Right. And the more you date yourself, so to speak, and spend that time to get to know yourself, the higher you're going to vibrate in that positive range. And you're going to attract that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the first thing really with that, a red flag is if someone is blatantly not meeting what you're looking for. I mean, Mm. allowing yourself to use the full sentence of no. And, you know, no is a complete sentence, y'all. It is. I love it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be where just because someone's interested in you, then you should be interested in them. Mm -hmm. Should be mutual. Right. Right. And you should be asking, I, I, I refer to it as you should be taking your own temperature. Love that. Mm-hmm. We should be, you know, I was, I was always like, does he like me? Does he like me? Does he like me? And my therapist at one point was like, do you like him? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even putting yourself in that kind of mindset, going into a relationship in the very beginning, mm-hmm. creates a totally different power dynamic. Yes. And you do get to express these non-negotiables to people. I remember when I first met my now husband, it was probably a week or two into us dating. And I said to him, I said, you know, I really enjoy going out with my girlfriends and it's really important to me. And I don't really want to be with someone who's going to hold me back from doing that. Yeah. Is that going to bother you? And he's like, no, that's completely fine. I'm, I don't care. Do what you want to do. And I'm like, okay, check. Check. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then you watch for that, by the way, 
right? And then you actually keep your eyes open because a lot of people, again, the more covert ones will be like, of course. course." But then every time you go out, there will be an emergency or he'll get sick or he'll, right? And you have to, you have to keep your eyes open for those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that really comes back to you continuing to champion for what you ask for and what you want. Mm. So, I mean, when we talk about red flags, red flags are going to be almost obvious in some sense, you know, are they doing the things like you said, like going back on their word, making you the one to blame all the time. I mean, anyone who's been through abuse does not, does not want to experience those things again. Right. No. But if you're (laughs) continually emotionally individuating yourself, if you're continually being okay with disagreeing and it could be, and it doesn't have to be aggressive. It can just be authentic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it could be something as simple as saying you don't like the same band they liked. Yes. But even that to somebody like I was who had, mm-hmm. had completely lost so much of themselves, right. Mm-hmm. Even, even to be able to say, I don't like that food. I don't like that band. I don't like that kind of music without feeling like the terror, the panic that I am now like, you know, uh, not good enough or they're not going to want to be with me or whatever. Like, even though that's authentically me, like that's hard. That's a, that's a muscle to grow back. And that's where the dating yourself comes in because Mm -hmm. you, if you've gone through and endured abuse, it's very common to come out of that, not remembering what you like. Yes. Because as you were saying, you can shrink yourself into the package that they want. And right. so dating yourself again, spending time with yourself or spending time with people that you, you love that you have not spent time with, you start remembering, oh yeah, I love filet mignon. I don't know. I don't even uh-huh. need know why I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking for me. I love filet mignon. <laughs> there you go. I love Pescatarian here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so these, so it's interesting, right? So, so in learning, in I mean, it, it's, it makes sense in in the figuring out what your non negotiables are in a relationship. You really have to get back into relationship with yourself first, absolutely, or absolutely. along the way, or along the way, right? I mean, well, they can go in tandem. That's that's mm-hmm. a good point because sometimes you know I'll do this exercise with my clients and I do tell them make this list important. Don't tuck it away. Don't put it somewhere. You're not going to see it, put it somewhere visible. And as you get to know yourself more, you may change your list. You may adjust your list based on what you're getting to know about yourself. That's right. Yes. And one of the ways you do that too. I mean, I I know that when I was, when I first got out dating was a, was a great way for me to do that. Right. Like I would literally like, you know, I'd come home from a date and be like, Oh, actually I don't like XYZ. I hadn't really thought about that. Or I do like, oh wow, I really enjoyed blah blah blah. I didn't realize that I that I still like that. Right. So dating is a great opportunity as long as you're keeping the focus on yourself. Yes, definitely. Yes. And allowing yourself to have those moments to say what you like and you don't like, mm-hmm. make your dates more honest, authentic, and you're going to be much less likely to find yourself months down the road wondering, how did we get here? That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And that's how you build intimacy. Right. The more right. honest and authentic you are about who you are, the more the other person gets to know you right. and shares themselves. Mm-hmm. 
Ugh, all right. We could talk all day. Dr. Amelia Kelly, thank you so much for coming on to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast and sharing your wisdom. Can tell us where people can find you and your new book, What I Wish I Knew. Definitely. So I have a website, ameliakelly.com. And I always say that's Kelly with an EY. Also on Instagram, Dr. Amelia Kelly. And you can find some info about the book, What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship on our Facebook page and also on Instagram as well. And I hope people visit me on my site. I try to make it a place where there's anecdotes and writing and meditations and just kind of an ongoing place to get resources. So somewhere to hopefully have some fun too. (laughs) Awesome. I know I'm going to be heading over there. such a pleasure. And, um, let's definitely do a part two going deeper into, um, HSP stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. I so appreciate you coming on and I know this is really helpful for our listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the divorce survival guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the divorce survival guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.